Lily Gal LGBTQ Plus podcast. My name is Shane Filcher. I use all pronouns and I am the executive director of the LGBT Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its foundation. On today's podcast, we're checking in with one of our sibling LGBTQ plus bar associations to discuss advocacy on behalf of the LGBTQ plus community through the use of Amici briefs. Joining me today is Christopher Riano, chair of the New York State Bar Association LGBTQ law section. Christopher R. Riano is the president and CEO of the nation's Center for Civic Education. He has lectured on constitutional law, jurisprudence, and administrative law for dozens of organizations across the country. He serves as a lecturer in constitutional law and government at Columbia University. His first book, Marriage Equality, From Outlaws to In-Laws, co-authored with Professor William Eskridge of Yale Law School and published by Yale University Press, presents the 50-year history of the fight for same-sex marriage equality in the United States from 1967 to 2017. The book has received numerous accolades, including the 2021 Silver Gavel Award from the American Bar Association. Mr. Riano also maintains a practice at Holland and Knight LLP, where he is currently of counsel. Christopher, thank you so much for joining us today. It is a true pleasure to be here, and I'm really, really excited to have this conversation, and I'm very, very excited to be able to join you and everybody else that's going to be listening to the podcast. Let's jump right in. Tell us about your involvement with the LGBTQ law section. You know, I think one of the things that's so critical when it comes to thinking about one of our roles as attorneys is the public role that we serve when it comes to being members of the bar and and the importance of being members of the bar. And one of the the things that always uh, has stood out to me when it comes to that role is is that that deep, deep dedication that we all have to the profession and, and then within that to society at large. On our certificates in New York, one of the things I always talk to my students about is we are counselors at law, right? And in many, many ways, I've always thought of that as being representative of the importance of being involved as an attorney in ensuring that the profession is as strong as possible. And the best way in so many ways to do that is through the involvement through bar associations like Legal and just like the section, the LGBTQ law section at the New York State Bar Association. It's part of the public service that we all take an oath to uphold. And it's one of the reasons that it's so exciting to have a chance to to be here today as somebody who's been a long-term member of both organizations and, and as somebody who I think has has really does embrace and 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 tries very deeply to to always think through why it's so important to be a part of bar associations and why it's so important to the profession, like I said, but also to our community to represent ourselves in in this capacity as lawyers and as members of the LGBTQ plus and allied communities. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's lovely that the bar associations have the networking functions, the CLE credits, the interesting presentations, but we can't forget about our obligation to the public as well. Absolutely. And and I think that's actually one of the best parts about being an attorney is, is that obligation we have to the public to uphold the rule of law and to ensure that 
our profession, you know, continues to represent those that can't necessarily otherwise find representation. And I mean, Legal does one of the best legal clinics that I think exists in New York City. I remember participating in it myself many, many years ago. That's the kind of thing that as lawyers, we've all dedicated ourselves to, and we just have to constantly rededicate ourselves to that public service. It's part of the profession. It's one of the most honorable pieces of what makes our profession so wonderful. And, you know, selfishly speaking, too, the clinic has been an entry point for some of our top talent at the organization as well. And that's certainly how I got my start. Who would have thought, you know, seven years ago, knocking on the door to volunteer, just wanting to help people and now running the organization. (laughs) But isn't that amazing how that connection is actually one of the most organic that can be? And, And that's what makes it so beautiful is that that actually is what upholds our profession is that public service. Even when we don't always think of it that way, that's part of what makes being a lawyer so wonderful. It's one of the reasons that I've always been really, really honored to be part of this work as a lawyer, just because that's that's part, that's the fun stuff. I mean, that's the good stuff. That's the reason that we all got into this. And to see that progression, like you just said, I mean, and that organic nature is just extraordinary. Well, I'm not sure if this is the fun stuff, given the anxiety with the upcoming Supreme Court season, but you know it's here. So let's talk about the LGBTQ law section's most recent amicus brief. Sure. I mean, one of the things that we've taken a leadership role on within the section is to really see and find ways to to lead on behalf of the State Bar Association, given that the New York State Bar Association is the largest voluntary bar association in the country, and it has got this incredible, uh, you know, over a hundred year history of being a leader in the profession, both here in the United States. But one of the things that's been amazing are the opportunities I've had to speak internationally, given how these these important topics and these important issues really are seen across uh, international lines as well. And one of the things that I've really dedicated my time as the inaugural leader of the section to is working on these amicus briefs on behalf of the entire state bar, because I do feel strongly that the New York State Bar Association should speak up and should find ways to represent the profession at the highest levels. And traditionally, that's been sometimes at the Court of Appeals. The two that I've done for the State Bar Association in conjunction with the groups I've worked with um, have both been at the United States Supreme Court. And given the big case that's coming up this next term, and given the interesting and complex constitutional issues that are are really baked in to this this particular case at this particular term, I felt really strongly that it was important that the voice of the state bar was heard and that that voice was led by a team of, of, of folks that included members of the LGBTQ plus you know, spectrum, as well as our allies. One of the things I've been really, really proud of uh, when it comes to section membership is almost a third of our section's membership are allies. And I think that's extraordinary to, to see that we are now at a point where it's incredibly important to build community within our community, but it's also important to to have ways to advocate for our community with allyship. And that's always been something that I've I've really championed because that's how we can actually, in many ways, uh, move the ball forward when it comes to LGBTQ rights and and what comes in the next five years, 10 years, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we're just too small of a community to do it alone. 
And I don't want to do it alone, even if we have the numbers, you know, it's better in coalition anyways. Mm -hmm. We get that question a lot. People come up to me and say, I'm straight. Can I join the gal? Absolutely. Our door is always open. We love our allies. Absolutely. And it's, and it's allyship. And if you look at, at how allyship has had an incredible impact on our community, one just needs to look at the marriage equality movement. And one just needs to see that the marriage equality movement was successful when allyship was championed and did not find the same success when factionalism was championed. And that's not an easy thing to do because it's not always easy to get people with different viewpoints and different ideals to move things in similar directions. But it is through that challenge that we do have uh, the potential for progress. Marriage equality, hopefully a resolved legal issue. We don't want to get into Dobbs today, but still a lot of underlying questions when it comes to how do you actually access the services to, to have a wedding, right? And that's where 303 comes in. Do you want to give us a little setup about the facts of the case? Sure. I think this is actually one of the things that I've, I've always found both fascinating and really important to be mindful of, right? We have nationwide and national marriage equality after a long-fought, multi-multi-pronged, multi-Supreme Court <laughs> case uh, lineage that we get in Obergefell. And yet that same day in most states, as I'm sure most people who are listening know, you could have been married and put your spouse and yourself in a photo on your desk and yet been fired in most states. These things are really, really complicated, as we all know. And it's important to think of them in a piecemeal fashion because that is how the law treats things, even after you see something like marriage equality. And I think it's a fascinating thing to think about from a constitutional legal perspective that, yeah, in in all states, you could then be married. And yet in most states, you could be fired without remedy because you put that picture up. And so we do have to parse these things out when we think about the way that these cases look. And 303 Creative is really, once again, putting various constitutional rights in positions where I think the court and and others are trying to figure out how we do balance some of these bigger questions and how we do now balance some of the issues that come up under both the First Amendment and the, the fact that we have a pretty extraordinary view of free speech and free expression and uh, and and the freedom to express oneself religiously and that's something that is cherished throughout the history of the United States and and we have to we have to acknowledge that at the same time that we need to acknowledge that uh, we ha- also have a cherished history, both in the United States and also pre-United States, and it's one of the things we talk about in the brief, of making sure that when one opens their doors to serve the public, that in doing so, you cannot discriminate against who you will serve. And so here we have a, a, a situation where there's the anti-discrimination laws in Colorado, which look similar to something that we would see here in New York. They're not always all the same, but similar. And a person who doesn't want to necessarily make websites for same-sex couples. And there's questions that come up. And I think that there are questions that that you can discuss and think through about, well, there's the freedom of expression and, and the freedom of expression uh, creation and 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 the freedom of religion. And how does that balance? And how does that necessarily interact with questions that come up regarding the right to have not just uh, the right to be married, 
but then the right to have the services that come adjacent to that marriage. And how does that look when those public accommodation doors are, are open to the public? These are not easy questions necessarily. I can absolutely note that I never ever thought I would write a history and tradition brief on public accommodation laws from the 15 and 1600s in England. <laughs> that was not on the legal career calendar in any way, but that's part of what I enjoy about these briefs. And I think that the, the justices and I think that our society is going to see more and more of these types of questions and people trying to grapple with difficult constitutional balancing. And I think it's important then when we think through difficult constitutional balancing that we are thinking about how we advocate for the community to protect the rights and responsibilities and liberties of the LGBTQ rights community. And it's one of the reasons why I felt it was so important for the New York State Bar Association to take a leadership role and ensure that the voice of the Bar Association um, as a whole was heard. Absolutely. The line of um, wedding services cases is always interesting to me personally, having worked in the wedding industry during undergrad, being a florist is one of the things that paid the bills and was also honestly just a nice part-time job while in college. But now I'm wondering, depending on how this case comes out, of course, is all of my time cutting and putting together flowers in undergrad going to be treated as my endorsement of all of those unions that I made flowers for? Because I certainly never thought about at the time that it was an endorsement of the union themselves or even the creative taste of the couples involved, right? One of the trends that was particularly in vogue at that time was just roses clustered very tightly together with no filler. And I thought that was absolutely hideous, but if that's what you want, I will make it for you, <laughs> you know? And, and so like, I just from a practical standpoint, I'm like, really, you're, you're saying that this is somehow a, an authorization or, or you're speaking in favor of the particular union at hand and the taste of the wedding to create the union at hand. Like that, just even from a practical point, I was like, huh. <laughs> okay, we're doing it. But the legal question as framed by the court is looking at whether the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act is compelling an artist to speak or stay silent and whether that violates the free speech clause of the First Amendment. So you had kind of hinted at some of the really creative arguments in, that is put together in the amicus brief. Do you want to take us through some of those arguments in a little more detail? You know, I'd, I'd say this because I think you actually just said something really extraordinary in thinking of your own time and your own experience. And, and I think in, in so many ways, the, the First Amendment, which was not intended to necessarily be first for all of those here who love a little bit of fun history, the First Amendment was actually the Third Amendment, just happened that the first two did not get passed. So in, in the way that the order goes. So, but our realistic history shows that the First Amendment does hold a really important place in our society. And so I think we have to, in order to properly, properly argue something along these lines, understand and respect that the First Amendment is seen in many, many, many ways as one of the most powerful pieces of constitutionalism in the United States. And that is especially the case at this point in our history. However, I have to come back to something that I thought was a really great argument made in the brief. And it was actually something that one of our straight allies who was working on the brief with me actually discovered was through some of their research. And I've got to give them all the credit in the world for that. 
And they are the ones that started to go down the, the historical and, and traditional rabbit hole of the fact that when you are a public accommodation, when you are a commercial enterprise and you are open to the public, there is a lengthy tradition of non-discrimination way before statutes were written about non-discrimination. And yes, there are pieces in our history where this has been an issue in America, but you most certainly can look at common law England and find this lengthy history of this idea that if you open your doors to the public, then you have to open your doors to all of the public. And I think that's actually really important. And even with the respect that that I think we attempt to accord to the very, very real First Amendment consideration here, and I think you have to do that to be a, a, a good advocate, is to see that the argument that is being made on the other side, I can get it. I can at least understand that argument. But I think it runs headfirst into, from a, tra- uh, from a history and tradition standpoint, the idea that when your doors are open, they have to be open. And you can't pick how those doors are open or not. And that's a really, really core thought that has to be, I think, thought through and, and has to be maintained and has to continue to be maintained, irrespective of even what the statutory considerations are. From a constitutional perspective and a unwritten constitutional perspective, right, our democratic norms, one of these great norms that I think we've had and, and I think we have to continue to have is if you are going to serve the public, you serve the public. And it, and, and it really does. And, it, and as simple as that seems, the idea that you begin to piecemeal that becomes very, very, very problematic very, very quickly. And the idea that the Constitution would sanction that piecemealing becomes very, very problematic very, very quickly. And I think that's why this case spoke out so strongly and became something that I really wanted to see what we could take from common law history and from from the way in which this has looked. Because I do think New York and New York and New York State Bar Association have a strong interest in maintaining and protecting the public's availability to, to access accommodations free from discrimination. And I think that that's something that this country has traditionally cherished. We haven't always gotten it right, but we have traditionally cherished it. And I think going forward, we have to maintain cherishing that even while we can still understand and and I can at least respect the argument on the other side. It doesn't necessarily mean that I think that that's the direction that we we have to go in. We're going to include a link with the podcast if you don't mind sharing with our listeners. I, I know it's already a public document anyways, but I want everybody to have access to this information as easily as possible. One of the things that surprised me, not being a native New Yorker, is how far back the New York State's history of civil rights law goes. Do you want to take us back to 1873 and kind of talk about some of that initial history of really how enshrined civil rights are here in New York State? So even putting aside all of what I've mentioned about the importance of the common law traditions, this is New York. New York has traditionally, now there's important exceptions, but New York has traditionally been at the front and the the front edge of enshrining protections when it comes to thinking about the importance of what we now think about as, you know, the human rights law and the, the maintenance of keeping Um, uh, these protections at the very forefront of our state in New York in particular. Now, I say that with some important caveats. 
I would be the first that would say that actually when it comes to the LGBTQ community, New York has not always been at the forefront from a statutory perspective. In many ways, it has actually been, at least in the early, early years, it really often was the courts that were far more protective of our particular community. Now, a very, very important note there is that that's not the case today necessarily, but I do think it's really important when we think about how constitutional law functions to think through the fact that, yes, at times the legislature has been quite ahead of the curve, but our community in particular, actually for the vast, well, for the majority of the early years, looking at post Stonewall really was courts that were beginning to really begin to recognize LGBTQ plus rights. And there's some other instances, but again, I think that that interplay is important to think through in New York. And I think because that informs our own history in the, in the state, it's another reason that I felt it was so important to work on a case like this because New York does traditionally have a history of being pretty ahead of the curve in ensuring that we maintain from a common law standpoint and from a statutory standpoint, protections in all sorts of different ways for all sorts of different people to ensure that when one is accessing not even just public accommodations, but when one is trying to access a whole host of different things in the state of New York, that one can do so free of discrimination based on a whole host of characteristics that we add to frequently. And I think that that's a history that as New Yorkers, we can be pretty proud of that we've been ahead of the curve and we've been pretty much uh, ahead of things with the very, very, again, important notation that for our community and for the LGBTQ community, that has not always been the case. And it's in fact, our community's vigilance and advocacy that actually helped turn the tide for us and our allies in so many other different ways uh, after Stonewall and the really, really important 70s and 80s, where a lot of these things began to become at the forefront. It was actually our community and our allies that were helping to push that at that time period in our state's history. And that's something that we should be very proud of, because that's something that is formative in our state's history and in our national history. And that history even continues today, right? Like I like to remind folks, gender is not just for transgender people. Do you want your boss to be able to tell you you have to wear a skirt to work? No, thank you, gender. Unfortunately, one of the instances where New York has not been the leader is the gap between Sanda and gender or the addition of sexual orientation as opposed to gender identity, gender expression, transgender status being added as explicit protections to the New York State Human Rights Law. I mean, it's extraordinary when you think about the fact that the history of LGBTQ rights in New York, in many ways, and and I can just, from my own experience, I was the first LGBTQ uh, counsel to the State Liquor Authority, and it was the laws of the State Liquor Authority that, in many ways, formed the SIPINs and the issues and everything that came with the SIPINs in the the late 60s, and because of the law that's actually still on the books, a statute that's still on the books, just interpreted differently today. And I can tell you that's an extraordinary history when you think about that, that we go from this this deep, deep discrimination that is baked into the alcohol laws that then is sort of 
taken out by activism and the way that the courts begin to look at things. And it's the interplay there with, as you just said, these lengthy gaps of time that often exist legislatively because of the legislature and the and the way the legislature operates that are extraordinary. It's extraordinary to see when courts fill in in various ways. You can see in marriage equality, the Court of Appeals said, we're not doing this. It had to go through the legislature and famously failed the first time it was brought up for a vote. And you had to have this really extraordinary amount of, of work behind the scenes to make it, to have it pass the second time around, which is truly an extraordinary legislative achievement that that worked out the way that it did. And and then yet, then that ends up being the real legislative win there uh, for a while while the courts begin to sort out other pieces of LGBTQ plus history and rights. I think something that, and one of the things that I come back to, and I think this is why it's important to participate in amicus briefs at the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court is a piece of the puzzle, but it's only one piece of our puzzle. And especially when you're looking at the history of a state and the state's rights, and you're looking at a history of the nation and national importance of LGBTQ rights, one has to, as a lawyer, has to think about all of the various different pieces, because it's through various pieces of legislation at the state and federal level that we have gained and or lost various things for our community. It's through the executive where we had domestic registries and things in certain uh, cities where we have gained and or lost certain things as a community. And it is through the courts that we have gained and or lost. So you have to take this big picture view. And it's why I feel it's so important to participate at things such as the US Supreme Court when it comes to cases as big as a case like this. Before we move on to talking about how lawyers can get involved if they too want to think about drafting an amicus brief. Are there any other aspects of the argument that you'd like to highlight for our listeners? I think similar to the last major case that we participated in, which was the Fulton case. And if I remember correctly, I think both of our organizations put in a brief in the Fulton case, at least in some way, shape or form. And in the Fulton case, similarly, I listened to oral arguments and was stunned at the questions that were being asked. Didn't necessarily lead me to recognize that they were going to really thread that needle the way that they did in a way that I don't think anybody expected to see that threaded the way that that got threaded. Similarly, I find it fascinating when you listen to oral arguments to see what justices have picked up on. And usually, not always, but usually surprised. In almost any case I've participated in or cases that I follow, I think it's more difficult to sort justices out based on the things that people usually think. And I think it's actually a little bit more difficult. You have to look at topics and kind of what the topics are really questioning and kind of see what the the history has been of the way that a justice has thought about certain kind of concepts. But I think that that's actually one of the most important parts of of participating in something like this. And I, in many ways, am really looking forward to hearing oral arguments because the last time that we did one of these, the whole team was texting each other like, oh, I can't believe that Justice Barrett asked that. And oh my goodness, that's this and that. And, And it's actually a lot of fun, especially since I've always tried really, really hard to involve attorneys in the in the section that otherwise and traditionally would not necessarily have the opportunity to practice in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. Today is October 14th, 2022, when we're sitting down and having our chat. It's my understanding that there isn't an oral argument date set just yet, but I'm sure you'll keep us updated on when that happens. And we'll look forward to live tweeting and live texting with you about it as well. 
I am looking forward to that too. For the attorneys out there who don't regularly engage in appellate work or feel as though I'm not sure I'm the right type of attorney for preparing an amicus brief, what are some opportunities that they could sharpen that skill set? Can you kind of give us um, some more information about how attorneys can get involved specifically with working on amici briefs? I think that there's always opportunities to work on briefs like this because there's always really interesting things happening at the appellate level in many different ways at the state appellate level or at the federal appellate level where people do want to have voices heard. And and the only way to work on uh, these types of briefs is through practice. I can even think about not even this particular brief, but the brief that we did in Fulton we had people working on the brief that had never, ever done a, a Supreme Court amici brief before. On the contrary, I had to actually swear, uh, admit at least two members of the team at the, at the last minute so that they could put their names on the brief because they've never done one of those before. And yet they were extraordinary. And I think they were extraordinary because they had worked and honed both their ability to do legal research. Legal research is really, really critical when you think about these types of arguments, finding public accommodations references in 15 and 1600s England is not easy, even for those of us who are used to researching things. (laughs) You have to really dig. And that's part of the fun, actually. And I think between that and the practicing and the practice of writing, those are the, the areas that that really bring this together. And then finding ways to work in a team, because generally speaking, these are team projects where you find ways to bring one voice to an argument. And in doing so, and the most important thing I have picked up on in in any of the briefs that I've ever done is unlike sometimes the way that people practice where it's a little bit more last minute than most of us would want. And I think we've all had one brief, if we're all litigators have had at least one brief where it was more last minute than you ever wanted. This is an area where you, you, it's really hard to do that. And you have to be very diligent and planned to keep one of these on the tracks. And especially working in a team, keeping one of these on the tracks is not always easy. And so it's practicing that teamwork, working together in a cohesive manner and keeping on time. When August seems very far off in June, it's still in June where you have to do the research so that you're not scrambling last minute in August to fix pieces because you just don't have the, the, the ability at that last minute to, to make sure that you're really cleaning up the argumentation. And so I think, as I often will say, a lot of it is practice. I know in the section, we definitely had folks working on these briefs, some of whom you know, could not even be admitted to the Supreme Court because they hadn't been lawyers long enough. I feel really strongly about engaging folks early on in their careers in this type of work. And there are lots of opportunities for the LGBTQ community and beyond to find ways to engage. I think the key is finding a topic or finding a case or finding something in state or federal court that's of interest and then finding those who are interested in that topic that may want to have extra help when it comes to drafting and writing a brief that they're looking to file at any level. Unfortunately, unfortunately, there's going to be no shortage of cases that need. No, no, (laughs) no. 
as longtime listeners of the podcast know. So what I'm hearing, teamwork, legal research, writing, sticking to deadlines, these are basic lawyering skills that everyone should have. So it's good to hear that there's an opportunity for all kinds of attorneys to get involved. Is there a CLE coming up where folks can learn even more about how to write the perfect amicus brief? Yes. So the three of us who spearheaded the uh, brief in this particular case on behalf of the New York State Bar Association will be hosting a CLE. And we're doing it specifically because I think it's actually really good to see how three lawyers, all with pretty, at times, divergent views on how to make arguments, came together and were able to stay on topic and on time and get this brief put together and to hear some of the behind the scenes work that went into that, I think is something that I, I you know, want to be very open to uh, and transparent about so that folks can learn how to do this themselves. There, there, there's such a need for more folks to be involved in these types of pieces of work. And it's not always going to be at the U.S. Supreme Court level. And it's a great augmentation to a practice because this is an area where you can put your legal skill to work in areas that matter and may matter personally, may matter professionally. And it's pretty rare to have somebody say, no, I don't, I don't want to help when it comes to something like this. On the contrary, it's one of the reasons I want to make sure that people can see what it was, what it's like to put one of these together. Um, because I think this will become more and more common at various different levels of courts. And and it's always actually surprised me that it hasn't been more and more common. Hmm. It sounds like a fantastic program. When is the date? It is on the 25th. Thank you. And can you tell us a little bit more about how our listeners can register if they're interested in attending? So I know that folks can register at the New York State Bar Association's website and they can join us to get CLE credit, which is always very exciting. And I, I certainly always look forward to ways to work together with, with folks in the community and allies who want to join in the important work, especially as the LGBTQ community continues to look at ways that we, we have to advocate for various different rights and liberties for our community. And that's not going to change in the next five to 10 years. There's still a lot of work left to be done. Yeah, we are not closing down our doors anytime soon. That is always my dream that one day this bar association will no longer be necessary and people will look back and say, huh, I can't believe they organized an affinity group around that. But that day is not today. And I don't see that happening in the next five years either. You've spoken about a number of ways that the attorneys can get involved in, honestly, both of our bar associations. Whether that's volunteering at the clinic, doing direct legal services, researching and writing Amici briefs. Do you want to highlight any of the other ways that attorneys can get involved? I absolutely love the legal clinics. I think that they are really, really, really important. And I know that I cherished the time that that I spent working in those clinics when I when I did. And I think it was a wonderful opportunity to give back to the community and others who came just looking for you know, guidance. A lot of times as, as counselors at law, we give legal advice. And a lot of times you're actually giving, qual, you know, sort of legal advice and guidance on problems that come up. And I think that that's a really important skill set to have as a lawyer because people come to lawyers for guidance and it's not always legal guidance. And so I actually always really champion uh, organizations that do that critical, critical work for the community. Um, and I know, you know, there's there's so many different things that we do as a section. 
And one of the things I love about having the section is that we have this statewide and national and in many ways international reach, whether it's through our programming, whether it's through the specifically the student focused work that we do at the law schools across New York State. But also the thing that I always find important when it comes to the State Bar Association is as the LGBTQ law section, I have people from all sorts of different practice areas across the entire state of New York that both from the community and from allies look to us to be a home for the community and and allies, but also find ways to cross-pollinate with folks in different areas of practice and or with folks that want to be more internationally involved or folks that are looking at statewide questions that may be coming up in the legislature or in the budget session. And I think there's just so many different ways that, that one can be involved in either organization. I just, I always argue that people should be involved. It's really important as lawyers that we remain dedicated to the time that we have to our communities. There's lots of different ways to do that. I generally say that folks should find ways that that they're passionate about so that they get excited to be involved in that way. But I do think that at the core of our profession, like we talked about earlier, is, is a dedication to public service. And one of the best things you can do with that dedication is be involved in your communities, whatever community that may look like, small or large. And one of the best ways to do that is through the bar associations that exist, like the two that we are talking about. Well, thank you for your kind words about the clinic. Of course, I echo the endorsement to spend time volunteering. It's a great way to sharpen your interviewing skills. And it's also just really honestly satisfying to see kind of a case resolve so quickly, because sometimes it's just as simple as like, look, this is not a legal issue. This is an interpersonal issue and there's no relief I can get for you through the court system, but that's good for you to walk away knowing what the contours of the law are and what your rights are in this particular situation. Did you know that our clinic actually turned 35 years old last month? Oh, I did not know that. That is extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, we were, the clinic piece was founded at the height of the AIDS epidemic to help basically do bedside wills for folks who were dying from late stage HIV. And this is what it's evolved into today is that we work with folks with all kinds of legal issues and all ages and stages of life. And sometimes people who have honestly just arrived to New York City seeking asylum and somehow Mm -hmm. found out about us within the first week of arrival. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the resources that you can give people and the, you know, the reference, the the referrals and everything. I mean, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. And whether somebody wants to plug in by volunteering at a clinic, somebody wants to plug in by volunteering on a brief, somebody wants to plug in by giving a CLE, somebody wants to plug in by participating in programming. The great thing about giving back in the public service is that you get to pick which way you want to plug in. I just mm-hmm. really, really encourage folks to take advantage and to give back to the community. It's, it's one of the best parts about being a lawyer. Well, we certainly always need more volunteers at the clinic, if I can make that shameless plug. But tell us how we can get more involved with joining the NISBA LGBTQ law section. Sure. I mean, we definitely are always looking for new members. Something I'm exceedingly proud of is the number of allies we have that are helping us with the work. I think that that allyship shows the 
changing tide of how people are looking at the LGBTQ community and assisting the LGBTQ community in, in ensuring that going forward, we continue to protect our rights and our liberties. And I think in many ways, yeah, I love seeing that allyship. And it's something that I've championed during my uh, inaugural chairmanship of the now LGBTQ law section. Um, and I think in many ways, by just joining, you're able to have access to CLEs that we do, the program that we do, just really thinking through the law student, through law legal career pipeline, which has always been very important to me as well. I, I've always felt strongly that you're a, a lawyer, sort of, when you start law school, enough to where the profession should welcome you in and really help shepherd you, you through your career. And I think joining the bar allows for, and the section allows for an incredible amount of cross-pollination with all the other different sections and areas of law that go both specifically within the state of New York, but because of the footprint of the state bar across state lines as well. And it's through that access that I think people can have a real rich experience. And it's something that I've, I've really always found important as a member of both of our bar associations since I think since I graduated law school. So it's I've always kind of had a foot in both because I always have been so impressed with the work. And I'm just glad that the New York State Bar Association has elevated the LGBTQ law work to a section. And, and I think that that's really a stamp on how important this is to the profession at large. Yeah, it's been so wonderful to see the section's progression. And thank you for your leadership. And I'm excited to see what the next chapters will continue to bring. Listeners, please collect the whole set. You don't have to choose between the two LGBTQ plus bar associations. We're doing different, but often very complementary work and different geographic areas as well. So it's not a either or, it's definitely an and. If you have questions about joining Legal, please visit lgbtbarny.org. We're always looking for more paying members as well, so we can continue to put on most of our programming free of charge. That is how we get that done. Is there any other final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners before we wrap things up today? Well, I just want to say thank you to everybody. It's been wonderful to have a chance to join. I'm really looking forward to all all of the incredible work that comes out of both organizations and the work has to continue. Even when we get to celebrate victories, a victory where now you can be married and put that photo on your desk and you do have a remedy for if, if something happens because of that. And because that has changed from a federal standpoint, even when we have victories like that, there are considerations that we have to have because our community is a very diverse community. And we have to think through how we're looking at advocating for the diversity that is inherent in our community. And the work has to continue. And I think that it's really important that folks take the time and, and think through how we make sure that that advocacy continues going forward. Well said. Christopher, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you as always to our listeners. Please continue to like, share, and find us on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite programs. <laughs>